0: Well, continuing from chapter 9, the narrative that spoke to Abimelech, that narrative that was explained last week, we are now introduced to two new judges in quick succession, one after the other. Tolar is the first and Jair is the second. We, we don't get a lot of details about these judges, the ones who judged Israel. Tola was from the tribe of Issachar, we know that much, we're told that much. He judged Israel for 23 years. Jair, he judged Israel for 22 years. He's a Gileadite, Gileadite that is from the land of Manasseh. So personal details were given, some details about sons and their family, but nothing of substance that we can sort of grab onto right now and explain Nothing of the way of the battles they, they fought with the neighboring pagan nations. Nothing of details here. There's nothing also of the, any of the reforms that they may have brought to the people of Israel during their time of judging. There's, there's nothing. It's just a very brief account of these two judges. In fact, very similar to Shamgar, if you may remember back in chapter 3. But it's interesting to me that something takes place at the end of chapter 8 in the book of Judges, and that has an effect towards the end of the whole book for the rest of the narrative. Something takes place. It's actually change occurs. Now, I've said before, as we worked our way through this, that what we're going to find before us and what we've already seen and witnessed is that there is a, a cycle of events taking place. You remember that. I've said that on several occasions. That the details may be different from one time or epoch to another, but the cycle is very different. The people of Israel are enjoying their life somehow, somewhat, enjoying peace and rest, and then, before long, they give their hearts over to pagan deities. They whore after false gods, and God is angered. And when God is angered, He gives them over to the oppression, oppression of the of the neighboring of their neighboring nations. It gives them over. If it's the nations that you want to be like, if it's their gods that you want to serve, how about you have the whole package and he brings them in and then they feel the oppression coming upon them a year two, or two or several years or even after decades, we'll see as we work our way through the book. And then after a while, they cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, Lord, deliver us. Deliver us from this plight. Deliver us from this oppression. And Lord God hears their cry and he has mercy. He sends forth a delivery a judge, and that judge does deliver these people, and then, and then they have a, a time of peace, a time of rest, a generation of rest. But, but as these cycles turn, in the epoch that we see before us, I've said earlier that, that the book, as we work our way through the narratives, the book gets darker and darker and darker, so it is cyclical, so to speak, but, but really more like a, a spiral that, that brings them down after every cycle, further, further into darkness, into wickedness, into evil. And what we see is really the exposure of man's heart, the wicked depth of darkness that is found in the heart of man. We see that. But something takes place that affects, I believe, this, the part of the, the cycle, a part of the cycle. And in fact, it affects the beginning, the starting point, and also the ending point. You see, what we see before us is this. From the first judge, Othniel all the way through Gideon in chapter 8, there is a consistency on a number of occasions we read, once the judge has delivered the people of Israel from the, the opposing nation that has come upon them and has oppressed them, we read these words, and the land received rest for, whether it's 40 years or 80 years, it matters not, but that's what we read. You remember that, I hope. Othniel defeats the Mesopotamians, you remember? And then the land of Israel, the land received rest for 40 years. Ehud after him. He, he, he defeats the Moabites uh, and, 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 uh, and rescues Israel from their plight. And we're told that the land received rest for 80 years. And then Deborah and Barak, you remember, they, they defeat the... Um, um, I've got to remember now. The the Midianites, the the Midianites and the Amalekites that were both encamped there in the land of Israel. And then we're told, and the land received rest for 40 years. And then Gideon comes along and he does that too. And he defeats, my brain's not working this evening. Gideon defeats the Midianites and the Amalekites, Deborah and the Barak, the Canaanites. And he defeats them in the land of Israel rests for 40 years. Beloved, Gideon is the fifth judge. There's seven more judges to come in the book of Judges. But after chapter 8, after Gideon, working our way through the next 13 chapters, you may recognize this on your own, but let me give you the heads up, not a single time from that point on will your eyes or mind come across that word Rest. Not even a single time. The judges and deliverers will be raised as we work for it. As I said, there's seven more judges to come. That's only in this book. But will Israel ever experience the full and complete rest under these judges? The author of the book has left that part out. Now whether they do or whether they don't, we know one thing for sure. We know things are getting very darker. And as one gives themselves over, whether it's a people, a tribe, or a nation, into sin, the condition of their lives get darker and darker. And that's what we see as we work our way through the book of Judges. No doubt, as we move deeper into the narrative, the circumstances would get better. When the judge is reigning, when the judge is judging over the people of Israel, there's no doubt at all. But then, the peace and the quality of life all comes to an end when... When the cycle begins again and they give themselves over to whore after the gods of the nations. And then we're told the Lord gives them to their just deserves. He sells them out to the oppressors. He sells them out to the nations. And that's what we see before us here in verse 6. Let's put our eyes down in verse 6 and see what is before us. In verse 6 we read, The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve Him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and He sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites which is in Gilead. Hear this. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim. So that Israel was severely distressed. Literally, Israel was crushed Shattered. They had their wills broken for 18 long years. 18 long years, Israel was crushed under the Ammonites. And here's the thing. It was the Lord's doing. It was the Lord who brought it upon them. Why? We're told because they were given to idolatry they were given to adultery and they forsook the Lord and did not serve them or serve Him. Listen, we've all read the Old Testament. We're, a, we're prized to the information and the stories that are within the Old Covenant. And we know that Israel is very susceptible to worshipping other gods. And what more often than not, what we see is we see a, a form of syncretism among the people of Israel. That is to say that They believe that they are a people who are set apart and peculiar for Yahweh. That his name is upon them. That he brought them from the land of Egypt and placed them in the land. They believe that. The tabernacle is among them. The altar remains erected. But what they do is they also bring other gods in from the nations. The gods that they've seen the the nation neighbors worship. And they bring them in and worship those as well as the God of Israel. They'll bring in and they'll start to worship the the Baals and the Ashtaroths, the the, the pole of Asherah. Or they'll build an altar to Baal or they'll build a shrine to to Dagon, to Molech or whoever. They bring them in and they, they find that they begin to worship both Yahweh and the gods of the nations. They cover all their bases just in case the neighbors had it right and they were on the right track. And that's wickedness. That's pure wickedness. Some may be thinking in this place, even here, that that sounds a little bit like the elements of the ecumenical movement of our day. Maybe, maybe it is true. But beloved brothers and sisters, although it does look a little bit like the ecumenical mishmash, it is also something that even is closer to home than you and I think. Because syncretism could be, beloved, a dividing of your own hearts to other allegiances. The Lord God says that I am the Lord God. There is no other God but me. He is jealous for his name. Worship is deserving of him and him alone. Can we actually divide our hearts and divide our devotions when the whole of our hearts ought to be towards worship of God and and, and given over in in a heart of disposition of love towards him? Can we divide our hearts to different idols like the people of Israel had done so often? Yes, we can. It looks like reading our Bibles, praying every morning. It looks like coming to church and doing churchy activities. Maybe we even give some time to the Lord. But then our hearts are given over to maybe love for money, maybe sexual immorality, maybe career, maybe power, maybe position, whatever it is. If we are trying to derive from the things of this world, or the desires and the passions of this world, we're trying to derive from those things what only God can give us safety, security and rest, then we are given over in idolatry. And that's a scary Reality, syncretism, beloved, is when we or anyone has divided the allegiance of their heart, when the devotion of the heart is not wholly given to the only true God, but is divided. One that is not fully devoted to the Lord. When the Lord says, you shall have no other gods before me. As wicked as that is as wicked as it is that we see the people of Israel worshiping the baals and the astrologs and the, and all these foreign gods and as wicked as, as that is and we might say we don't do that but then we recognize idols begin in here before they're manifested out here what we see before us beloved is actually worse again what we find here in chapter 10 It's not Israel making Yahweh or giving Yahweh, the only true God, a smaller portion of their heart. A smaller portion of their devotions. No, they've kicked him out completely. They've replaced him with foreign gods. Listen to what it says in verse 6. They forsook the Lord. They forsook the Lord and did not serve him. They abandoned the Lord. They rejected Yahweh, the only true God. They swapped Him for idols. And I want you to see that the number of the seven, the number seven in our Bibles is always speaking to a type of completeness. You remember that. Seven is completeness in the Bible. So when you come across seven or seven things or seven attributes or seven details, you need to think completeness. And that's exactly the amount of idols that are listed for us in this passage. Ashtaroth, Baal, the god of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of the Moabites, the the gods of the Ammonites, and the god of the Philistines. Seven idols listed for us. Yahweh is kicked out from their own heart to make room for the idols. And now the completeness of their hearts is defined by worship to idols. Worship to foreign gods. They're, they have all the gods, all the idols that they can handle, and they're like, we're good, we're complete right now. We're worshipping the idols that we want to worship. There's no place for Yahweh. Why well, would that make the Israel, would that not make Israel as wicked as the nations around them, that the land spewed out of its mouth in order? That Israel would bring or be given the inheritance that was promised to her? It Wouldn't Israel now be just as wicked as those nations? No. Worse. Israel would make, this would make Israel worse. This is an act that is even more evil, beloved. Israel had covenanted with the Lord God. They had been given his law, his commands, his precepts, his Rules. They'd tasted of his goodness. They'd experienced his mercy. They're right now standing and, and residing in the land that was given as an inheritance, as a product of the promise that he'd made centuries earlier. The nations didn't have any of that. It's one thing to be judged according to the light of one's conscience, the high court that the Lord has placed in every single individual. That's one thing, but it's another thing altogether to reject the word of God. And that's what Israel is doing. Far greater light, and they are rejecting that light. Unbelieving Israel is now worthy of a greater judgment than even the nations. And that's a tre- terrifying reality, beloved. Quite often, as our children were growing up, we would, I would tell them of the privileges, the great privilege that it is for a child to be brought up in a Christian household as, in, as imperfect as our household was and is. It's a great privilege for children to be brought up in Christian households. You're exposed to the word of God. You're exposed to the authority of scripture. And that's just a a beautiful thing. But in the same breath, I would warn them. And that warning would come in the way of, but if you reject the gospel, if you reject the Lord, if you reject his salvation, then I'm convinced it would be worse for you, worse for you than a convicted mass murderer because of the light that you've been exposed to. That's a terrifying reality. I don't know about you, but that's a terrifying reality. Israel wholeheartedly rejected the Lord and they devoted their hearts to idols. Seven idols listed for us. Seven idols that had taken devotion in their hearts, in their practices. Their hearts were defined by idol worship. Yahweh had no part in their devotion, in their hearts. But I don't want you to miss the distinction. Because in verse 11, we see it, I believe, the heart of God. Because as Israel was wholly devoting herself... To whoring after false deeds, the Lord God is devoted to his people that he is covenanted with. Look, listen, listen to what he says in verse 11. It says, And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians, from the Amorites, from the Ammonites, from the Philistines, from the Sidonians, from the Amalekites, and the Maonites? And they oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hands. Completeness of the heart of the people of Israel at this point was towards wickedness and idolatry. And if you're going to describe the heart of the only true God, it is pure faithfulness and mercy towards his people in preserving and in keeping his covenant that he made. You received mercy from me, the Lord saying, goodness from my hand. It's goodness and mercy that you don't deserve. And now you've made your intentions clear. You've turned your back. You've rejected me. You're walking away from the only true God. Therefore, here's the terrifying words. Therefore, I will save you no more. Verse 13. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. You can't hide anything from the Lord God. He sees not only what you do he sees your heart he knows what's in their heart he sees that they're seeking him now because they're in a pickle they're in a bind they're they're oppressed by, by the enemy out of their suffering out of their oppression they cry out help us redeem us deliver us God says you go to the gods you worship you've chosen those gods go And see how much help they're going to be in the time of your need. You abandoned me for them. Now go to them and see what sort of help you can get from these dead deities. Let them help you. It's been 18 long years that they've been under the oppression. I suspect they've probably already tried that already and come to no avail. We're told Israel confesses her sins. She puts away her idols and once again she cries out for deliverance. Do as you please, O God, but, but deliver us from the hands of our enemies. Now whether this is a true spirit-wrought profession of confession and repentance or whether it was worldly sorrow, I'm, I'm able, unable to... To know because that's motivation of the heart and the Lord knows that. But one thing I do know is the text tells us that the Lord God does not abandon his people. He doesn't abandon them. He could. He'd be completely righteous in doing it. They broke covenant with him. You remember the covenant made to their fathers and, and then re-established over and again. You remember the covenant? It was a covenant that was predicated on the if. It's a contingent or conditional covenant. It was based on obedience. If you obey my voice and obey my commandments. They no longer obey the voice of God. They broken covenant with him. God is well within his rights and he's perfectly righteous to abandon Israel and to eliminate and completely destroy the name of Israel from under the heavens. To get rid of them as a people, as Israelites, never to be heard on the planet again, he would be completely within his right. But he doesn't. Instead, he continues with this with his unfaithful, unbelieving, obstinate, hard-hearted people. And he does it for two reasons, and we'll quickly look at those, and I'll end with that. Verse 16 tells us, The Lord became impatient. Over the misery of Israel. That's a really difficult rendering in the ESV. I don't know about you. I read the ESV and I love it. But some things don't click into my mind. And that's one of them. The Lord became impatient over the misery of Israel. That doesn't click to me. But let me tell you what other translations have said. And I think they're better rendering. At least to my mind. And I hope hope they'll help you also. It could be also translated he could no longer endure or he could no longer bear their misery. Even his soul was grieved over the mystery or the misery of Israel. His soul was troubled over the plight of his people. That's huge. You know, Systematic theologies can be incredibly helpful if used in the right way. You can go to a systematic theology and you can open it up and you can look at a topic. And that topic could be like the properties of God, the attributes of God. And you can open that up and go systematically through them and it will explain what the whole Bible speaks to a particular attribute. Let me tell you something. If your understanding of the impassibility of God doesn't allow a God who is moved in this way towards the plight of your people, it's best to close that systematic theology, put it to one side and come back to the word of God. Because what we have before us is an expression of God's heart that is moved at the plight of his people. This truly sovereign God of the universe, the one who knows all, there is nothing that escapes his knowledge there's nothing that surprises him. He decrees all things, not a single atom that is rogue, apart from his absolute decree. He's unsurprised. He knows what's going on. He knew what was going to take place from eternity past before he said, let there be light. And yet, watching the plight of his people and the misery of his people crying out to him, moved him. This is our God. Great and majestic, yet infinitely personal, who can who can feel with you. Yes, he can feel what you're going through. He knows. So God is moved with compassion. He's moved with mercy. People don't deserve it. They've broken covenant with him. But he's... Move to act in mercy because he's a compassionate God. One. The second reason. The second reason the Lord doesn't abandon his people is simple. It's because of the covenant that he has made. But brother, you just said earlier that the covenant he made in Exodus chapter 29 and then reiterated many times is a covenant that is built upon a, a condition and that condition is perfect Obedience to all that Lord has commanded, yes, it has that big if. If you obey my voice, if you obey my commands, if you do my, my precept. all those ifs true. But that's not the covenant I'm speaking about. I'm speaking to an earlier covenant. I'm speaking to a covenant he made to their father, Abraham. I'm speaking to a covenant he made to their father Abraham. Because when God spoke to Abraham there in Genesis 15, he said that through your loins, through your offspring, all the nations of the world, will, all the earth, nations of the earth, all the families of the earth will be blessed. He's not speaking that they'll be blessed only through, through these people. From what we can see, they haven't been blessed at all up until this point, right? No. No, all the nations of the world will be blessed the people of Israel will be preserved by God supernaturally all the other ites will slowly drift away and fade away and the name will fade from under the sun but the people of Israel will not because God has made a covenant to Abraham a covenant that he will preserve yes the people of Israel will preserve the oracles of God the word of God and it will be passed down which is an infinite infinite blessing and a treasure to the people of God in all generations and he'll preserve that when we have that today but more importantly it is the incarnate word of God that will come through Israel through the loins of Abraham the singular offspring Jesus Christ all the nations of the world will be blessed through Christ not through an old covenant the old covenant cannot save a person if you have an if you cannot obey no human being could obey none Adam born upright made created upright he couldn't obey he couldn't obey if that if remained, we are all perished. We all go. But God kept, God preserved his people. Even now. Because he's a compassionate God who loves. Who shows mercy and is moved by the plight of his people. But also in order to preserve his people. Because he made a promise. And that promise spans back to Genesis chapter 3. That the seed of the woman will crush the head of Satan. Or will crush the head of the serpent. And he will be born in the lineage of the people of Israel. From the tribe of Judah. So that he can... Obey and fully complete and fulfill the old covenant and then reinstitute a brand new covenant, a covenant that not is ratified, that is not ratified in the blood of oxen and has an if in it, which is death. Rather... He'll fulfil the if clauses and more. Whatever the Lord has given in the Father, all the promises, all the all the commands the Father had given Him, He'll fulfil. And it's a new covenant that is ratified in the blood of the Son of God made man. And He'll hang upon that cross and bleed upon that cross, so that people like you and I, beloved, those who have come to trust in Jesus Christ, will be saved of our sins. This is what I want to get to. The glory, the glory, is in Christ. The glory of when we read the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, all these narratives, it's pointing to the one who is the antitype, Jesus Christ. These are shadows, these are types, but the fulfillment comes in someone far more glorious and that is Jesus Christ. Whenever, whenever you see the mercy of God, like we do here in Judges chapter 10, the mercy of God upon an undeserving people, like the people of Israel, where he should only crush them under the weight of his glory, you and I need to remember that the mercy of God displayed in Judges chapter 10 is mercy of God upon you and I. Because had he of not been merciful to a people who don't deserve, where would the Son of God, Jesus Christ, be born? All this was part of God's plan. His mercy, His compassion, although undeserving. But as we read this, we ought to say, Lord, not, I'm not like those people. I can come to my home. I haven't got altars built to Baals or Asherah poles. I don't have poles, idols for made up to, to Moloch and the Dagons of, I don't, no I don't, I don't have that but I have them in here and I need to be rescued I need to be rescued I don't point the finger and say we're not like them but rather Lord apart from your grace I would do the same and worse that's grace that's the grace let's pray